0: Welcome to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Claire Brenner. She's co-founder of the Urban Innovation Fund. This is Technotopia. How do you market to your customers? When it comes to marketing your business, it's all about reaching the right audience at the right time and connecting with them when your message will resonate the most. If you want to target your customers where they hang out and where they are ready to make decisions, LinkedIn can help you. We all know that LinkedIn is the world's largest professional network, and when you advertise on LinkedIn, you have the opportunity to build long-term relationships with your customers. In fact, four out of five customers who are on LinkedIn are decision-makers at their companies. So you're building relationships that really matter. Relationships that often translate into high-quality leads, website traffic, and higher brand awareness. What's the first step? talking to the right audience. LinkedIn has the marketing tools to help you target customers with precision. LinkedIn can find them by their job title, company name, and industry. The bottom line, targeting better on LinkedIn helps your customers find you. To redeem a free $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com/techno. That's linkedin.com/techno for your free $100 ad credit. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Claire Brenner. She's the co-founder of the Urban Innovation Fund, uh, which is a topic near and dear to my heart. Welcome. uh, Welcome, Claire.
1: Thank you. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the Urban Innovation Fund. uh, If if what kind of urban innovation you're funding implicitly, I guess.
1: Sure. So the Urban Innovation Fund is a venture capital firm. We're based in San Francisco, uh, and we invest in startups shaping the future of cities. That could really run the gamut in terms of industry vertical from very traditional smart city sectors like transportation and utility management. But we also include in our vision for solving urban problems, uh, sectors like education, the future of work. Um, we, We really try to take an expansive view Um, But all of our investing is at the really early stage. So we typically write pre seed and seed stage checks somewhere between 100 and 500K, um, although we do often invest over multiple rounds. Um, And a big part of our value add is um, not just investing, but providing a lot of strategic support to our companies, uh, especially around areas of political and regulatory strategy, just because those are areas where, um, as I'm sure you see every day in the news, uh, companies have a lot of trouble figuring that space out.
0: Okay, I want to talk about all of that stuff because that's that's uh, excellent. Cause because recently, this the podcast has been about blockchain because everybody's excited about blockchain. But I'm most excited about the future of cities because the the premise of this podcast was that we were either going to live in like a a beautiful world where it's going to be really nice and green and cafes everywhere, or it's going to be Blade Runner. So I'm trying to figure out uh, which one I should be betting on, and, and if I should get on the spaceship when I get the chance.
1: Um, I would say stick around. I think there's a lot of really exciting innovation happening, and there are actually a lot of companies that are kind of marrying your two interests in terms of the blockchain and the future of cities. So, like uh, a company we recently invested in is called Votes. Uh, they're a mobile voting platform that's built on the blockchain, um, and the idea really is, um, you know, when you think about what's wrong with voting, uh, you typically think about two things: uh, one, people don't do it, and two, uh, there's a, a lot of really Very legitimate concerns about security, you know, is Russia tampering with our elections. Um, And so the idea behind votes was, if you can empower people to vote on their phone, many more people are likely to do it. Um, And if you can record those votes on the blockchain, it's incredibly secure and easy to audit. Um, And they started actually by doing a lot of municipal elections in New England because you know there's a lot of um, quarterly voting, participatory budgeting, things like that, um, which I think people are really surprised that <laughs> government has been pretty forward thinking about this. Um, and they actually just facilitated the first federal election on the blockchain um, about a month ago uh, in partnership with West Virginia. Um, and their thought process, I guess, in West Virginia is that there's a lot of very um, active duty servicemen and women who vote from overseas. Um, and when you vote overseas, uh, you're usually doing it by mail. Usually your votes aren't even counted unless the election is super, super close, which is very disenfranchising. Mm-hmm. Um, so they actually did a pilot, um, to, to help them actually vote, uh, mail, which is pretty cool.
0: Okay. So the, so this is, this is something I was, I was talking to Deepak Chopra. And, uh, obviously he's kind of wacky, but his, one of the coolest things that he <laughs> talked about was that there was this vision for, general world voting. So say we're all gonna to go to war with Russia and everybody in America basically has to press a button yes or no with a biometric or whatever. Is that is is that your vision of the future?
1: Uh I would like to think that it was, but I, I, I want to be realistic. I mean for us when we think about solutions, we're trying to tackle today's problems, not the sort of imaginary ideal problems of tomorrow where everyone can have an equal say. Um I think for us it's more about like finding those solutions that are addressing the challenges that we ourselves face, that our parents face, that our neighbors face, that we see people facing when we walk down the street every day. Um, and that's kind of how we sort of prioritize the solutions that we look at. I mean, I think when, when you think about like empowering people, maybe in the future that will be, you know, literally everyone can have a say in terms of whether we go to war. But right now, I think it's much more like, like I was talking to some family members about this, like maybe a hundred years ago, if you wanted to solve a, a problem that you're, you're feeling firsthand or you're experiencing in your community, you'd go into government. Um, and maybe a generation after that, you might start a nonprofit or maybe even a lobbying firm. And I think what you're seeing right now is that people are trying to use technology and start for-profit businesses that kind of empower them to participate and to feel like, you know, actors, positive actors uh, in terms of addressing these challenges, whether it's Putting a bunch of scooters out on the street, or you know, trying to come up with a new way to vote. I think people are really thinking outside the box.
0: Um, before we go into like the obvious questions, like why why are you guys doing this? Why do why do you think cities can be saved in this manner? Because I mean, uh, there's a lot of despair regarding um, local city governments, uh, local folks who are basically voting against their own interests, etc. Why do you think technology can fix this kind of thing?
1: I mean. One percent of Americans now live in cities and that number is just projected to grow and grow. And I think by 2050, two thirds of the world population is going to live in or around a city. And so whether we like it or not, I think these problems are going to become more acute if we don't find ways to solve them. And I think there's a lot of opportunity right now because of the cash draft nature of a lot of local governments, you know, not even mentioning what's happening at the state and federal level. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just think there's a lot, a lot of opportunities uh, people you know, trying new things, but I think this is something that's been going on for a while. Um, So actually my co-founder, Julie, and I met when we were in business school, like eight, oh God, like eight years ago. Um, And we really came together around our love for startup solving city problems, although I don't think we would have described it as such at the time. Um, So she'd been working for a company called Revolution Foods, which is like a healthy school meal provider. At the time they really were like a little startup, lucky startup. Now Mm -hmm. I think they do like 200 billion in annual revenue. They're really big. Um, And I've been working for a company called Fundrise, which um, essentially started by crowdfunding dollars from the community to invest in institutional real estate within that community, both, you know, with accredited as well as non-accredited investors. I I think the best way to probably describe them now is like a betterment for private real estate. Um, And they've gone on trades like $50 million, so they're uh, quite large as well. But this is like when Lyft was just getting off the ground and Airbnb. And we felt like all of these companies had something in common. You know, they would never or almost never probably self-identify as social impact companies, but they were really, they were all solving really interesting community challenges. And at the same time, they were scaling in ways you don't typically see community organizations do. Um, And we just thought they were amazing. And that kind of our our research in that space and happy to talk more about what we found and challenges they have in common. But like, I think we've seen for a while now is people are just coming up with these ideas um, because they care about the space, not because they're self-identifying as urban or, they see themselves as urbanists, but because they're just they're faced with these problems every day in their own lives, and they're looking for creative ways to
0: to solve them. Okay, um, this is going to be a little snarky, but why doesn't why hasn't San Francisco solved any of this stuff? Because I mean, you're sitting right there, and I it's almost San Francisco is kind of like the it's the ultimate in soft urban blight uh, with a nice hard edge. So you basically have tent cities next to feces next to Twitter. So what's the uh, what's the solution there? How does why, why has why hasn't this worked in SF?
1: You know, I think we get asked all the time, like, why haven't you invested in a startup that solved the homelessness crisis or the housing crisis? And frankly, I think it's a really naive question. Sure. Um, I don't, I don't believe that technology companies are capable of of addressing many of these like fundamental social issues on their own, although I do think they can play a role in like facilitating some of some of that change. But fundamentally, you know, these are these are policy related questions and these are government questions. And I think a lot of folks, you know, as sort of me uh, sort of pooping on my own space, but like, you know, I think a lot of people gravitate towards technology solutions because it seems easier mm-hmm. <laughs> than having to kind of wade into some of the really complicated um, fraught regulatory and, and Sort of policy-related challenges that that really do need to get be addressed before we can solve any of these issues. That said, I think we're starting to see a lot of technology companies partner in really thoughtful ways to deliver solutions that we all need. Like we're not apparently capable of driving the political uh, headwinds we need in order to like really fundamentally reform our public transportation systems, for example, mm-hmm. here in the city. But I think they've been really thoughtful about partnering with Motivate, you know, the parent company behind City Bike and uh, the bike share here in San Francisco, Ford GoBike, um, which was just, uh, just was announced, was acquired by Lyft this past week. And I think you're starting to see Lyft kind of embrace this idea of being almost like a multimodal part of the public transit system. Like I know their app has really evolved if you check it out recently in a sort of showing you all the different ways you can get around. And I, I think that will continue. And so I do think that technology companies when they are thoughtful and when they partner effectively with government can be part of the solution. But fundamentally, like unless we have people who go into office and who vote and who show up at community meetings, like for better or worse, these things are not going to change. Um, and I think that's a really important thing for the technology community to recognize: there are limitations to what we can do on our own if we, you know, refuse to partner with the folks who, who ultimately have a, a big say in, in how our cities function.
0: Can you think of an example where somebody who might have been in the tech sector kind of did that uh, went into the public sector and used their expertise properly?
1: I mean i think I think the lift and motivate example is, is like the gold standard. Um, I think another example is that that company revolution foods that I mentioned earlier I mean providing healthy school meals is is fundamentally something that our our communities benefit from, children benefit from. Um, and what we're seeing is a a really innovative private actor stepping in to kind of try and push the conversation forward around those issues. So I definitely think that's a really good example. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there, I think there are actually a lot of companies out there. Um, but I think there are an equal, if not more number of (laughs) companies who, who kind of think they can do it alone. And that's, that's not necessarily productive either.
0: Okay. Interesting. Um, all right. What is this? What do cities look like after you're done? Once you're completely uh, once you're when, when you guys close up shop, and you're completely done?
1: <laughs> I mean, we're never going to be done. Julie is uh, my co founders, uh, a really tremendous person. And we always talk about the fact that we want to be uh, investing together and working together till we're dead. So okay, <laughs> I don't think we'll be done. Um, but I do think that um, we're starting to see more and more people think creatively about what it means to solve urban problems. You know, I think historically people have really limited themselves to the sort of smart city sector, but I think we're starting to see more and more companies tackle really unu- not unusual, but like unexpected challenges and, and that we would fit very squarely within our vision for solving urban problems. Mm-hmm. And maybe that means, I guess, sort of the technology world expanding to address the needs of, of a larger segment of the population. Um, so, like, uh, a recent company we invested in was called Milkstork. They're a breast milk shipping company. Okay. Um, <laughs> I know. No, uh, it's fine. It uh, I, have,
0: I have three kids, so I've, I've, we've shipped plenty of breast milk uh, in planes and stuff. So.
1: Sure. I mean, but I think the idea here is workforce development is a critical issue that we need to address in order to make our economy work, to make our local governments work, to make families work. Um, And they essentially, I mean, they have a direct-to-consumer line, but they sell mostly to large corporations like SAP and McKinsey and Google and essentially offer this as a health benefit to their employees so um, they can kind of address the challenges that they're facing, both retaining women um, and just getting women to join the workforce Mm -hmm. in general. I mean, I think what they're finding is that a lot of women, when they become moms, choose to leave. And if they can, in fact, convince them to come back, um, they oftentimes pursue uh, sort of career paths that are less likely to lead to senior promotion just because. Those roles that would lead to promotion, um, oftentimes involve a lot of travel. Um, So they essentially offer the service where you know a business traveling mom can say, "I'm going to this location for this many days," and um, when they arrive, this sort of delightful kit is waiting for them, where they can pump their breast milk and Hmm. press a little button; it fills and overnights at home, integrating in with their health benefits, so they don't have to pay for it. Um, And so I think we're going to start to see sort of a world where the sort of technology elite is considering the needs of a much wider swath of the community. But I don't think there's like a day zero where, um, you know, all of our problems are solved and we live in a happy cloud. Although that would be, that would be wonderful. Mm
0: -hmm. Does the, so, I mean, I think the, I think one of the primary political movements right now is the idea of the, of the, uh, the, let's say the, the, middle classes versus the technology elite right they mm. they use all the products uh that are given them but they also hate the fact that they're being forced to use these products so the popularity it's i guess it's to a to a degree it's sort of a sort of a frustration that hey someone made a really silly thing where you can basically just get on and meet all your friends and post pictures of cats and but i'm so dead i'm so addicted to it that i can't stop it but it still doesn't suit my it doesn't fill my needs when does the technology elite become do they survive this next come this coming decade of insurgent democracy
1: i think if they're smart they will i mean i think we're seeing an evolution within the technology space i mean even when we were just starting off with our research at grad school um, around these urban problems and um you know the kinds of challenges that they face um we were seeing like blog post from Andreessen and all the other top firms basically talking about how they would like die before they entered any highly regulated sectors. They would never recommend that for, uh, any smart investors. And now what we're seeing is so many of the, uh, sort of most high value private companies in the world are operating in extremely highly regulated spaces, whether Mm -hmm. it's Palantir or Uber or Airbnb. Um, and I think there's a real recognition that, um, companies need to engage in order to be successful. Um, and there's certainly not one way to engage, but I think they're starting to recognize that just sort of knocking around like a bull in a China shop and expecting people to accommodate them is, is not working, Mm -hmm. uh, anymore. I think, uh, you know, unless you have a war chest like Uber and you were a first mover in that space, like, I don't think you can get away with that now. I think governments are recognizing they need to be more thoughtful about this. um, and I think you're also seeing a, a sort of corresponding rise in sort of a new role within the tech sector, which is like policy experts. Okay. Um, you know, I remember when, the, you know, sort of Molly Turner at Airbnb first started as sort of the first policy lead there, Emily Castor at Lyft, like this was a new job that they kind of made up as they were going. Um, but now, you know, all of these companies have enormous policy teams, um, which is something you just didn't see in the tech space previously. And so I think, as the sort of larger successful leaders in the space are um, creating these roles and refining what it means to, to sort of engage with the community, I think the sort of startups in the space will also start to reflect that mantra. And that's definitely the advice that we give our companies. So like Julie and I have been investing together for, I guess, five years now. And so like we were the first investors in Chariot, which is a commuter shuttle that crowdsources its routes from the community. And they were, they were acquired, I guess, a couple of years ago by Ford to build out their new smart mobility business line. And they had a lot of competitors who were much better funded than they were. And they were all (laughs) essentially shut down for stupid regulatory and political reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, One very famously getting a cease and desist letter just a few days after launching. Um, And so I think the thing that really distinguished them as a company was the fact that we were able to work with them from day one to think about you know, um, integrating with public benefits programs like wage work so they could offer a price comparable solution to muni, hiring full-time workers instead of uh, 1099 workers and making sure those workers came from the local community so they engendered a lot of goodwill, you know, targeting neighborhoods that were underserved by public transportation so there'd be a very clear value proposition that they could present it to regulators who might otherwise be inclined to be a little less friendly to them. And I think we're starting to see um, startups think about these issues not just as a um, like, oh, we have to stay out of trouble, but like, there's a real competitive advantage to figuring out how to do it correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I think there will always be dumbasses in the space who don't get it um, and we will figure out a way to get around it. But I think there's a lot to be said for thinking creatively about engaging with other stakeholders in the space to one, actually solve problems that matter, um, but two, um, grow as quickly as possible in ways you might not otherwise be able to do.
0: Okay, so bottom line, are we are we going Blade Runner or are we going uh are we going happy cloud? Run?
1: I think it's somewhere in between. Uh I'm a really boring realist, but um I, I I am really um encouraged by how many really interesting companies we see uh sort of in the urban space and starting to really identify as, as being part of the urban space. And I should just note there's also a lot of really interesting, diverse founders. I mean that from like a demographic perspective. Um so uh, I want to say like three quarters of the companies we've invested in to date, and I think Julie and I over the years have invested in over 40 companies, um, three quarters have a woman or person of color on the founding team. Um, that's not something you typically see in Silicon Valley. I think people are really activated by the idea of solving problems that actually matter to them. And I think that's um, reflected in the fact that we're seeing some really new types of entrepreneurs out there. And I mean that in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. All right. Excellent.
0: All right, where, can, uh, where can people uh, get some money from you? Do they just have to email you and you'll send them k- checks?
1: <laughs> I usually say Twitter is a good way to engage with me. I don't post very often, but I definitely read all the messages that I get. Okay. Um, but we also have an info line, so just info at urbaninnovationfund.com.
0: All right, very cool. Uh, yeah, so I'm excited to hear that we're not going to be living Blade Runner and that we are going to have.
1: I hope yes. not. <laughs> thanks, thanks for joining us,
0: Claire. <laughs> this has been Technotopia. I'm John Biggs. We will see you next week. Yeah, perfect. We got it. Technotopia is brought to you by Happy Fun Corp. Happy Fun Corp is a design-driven technology company in Brooklyn, New York that specializes in building mobile and web applications for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Whether it's a new mobile or web application that will help people experience the internet in a fun new way, or software that will interface with a new piece of top-secret hardware, Happy Fun Corp is always up to the challenge. Big or small, Happy Fun Corp loves building software and loves working with great people. Come build with them. HappyFunCorp.com Technotopia is presented by your host, John Biggs. It was produced by Rick Barr of Barr 26 Entertainment at ricksvoice.com. It appears every Friday at noon, and we're always looking to talk to interesting people. Tweet at John Biggs if you'd like to join us on the show.